I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The message today is entitled, Life with the King in the Kingdom. Our current Bible focus is on what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And we've been considering the theme verse from Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. And I've defined spiritual formation in this way. Spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus for the glory of God, for our good, and for the blessing of others. God's plan for your life and for my life is that we grow to be like Jesus. The last time we were together, we emphasized what living a surrendered life is all about from the story in Luke chapter 2 of the boy Jesus at the age of 12 years old in Jerusalem. And we learn how a surrendered life seeks to do the will of God, desires to give glory to God, and is also willing to suffer for God. Jesus, the Son of God, lived his life on earth from the beginning in surrender to the will of God the Father. And we follow after his example and we answer his call in our own surrender to God. And today we come to the subject of life with the king in the kingdom with a particular emphasis on Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. For context, I want to read beginning in verse 9 and go down through verse 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The backdrop is that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist in keeping with his mission on the earth. His mission on the earth was to do the will of the Father to identify with us in his humanity, to provide the example for us to follow, and ultimately to give his life in our place. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened. The Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and the voice of God the Father came from heaven. God the Son was baptized. God the Holy Spirit descended And God the Father spoke from heaven. Mark provides a brief account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He was there for 40 days. He was tested. Satan was there trying to lead him astray. He was there with the wild animals, and yet the angels ministered to him. Following this, John the Baptist was put into prison by Herod Antipas, and Jesus came to the Galilee region to minister. He was proclaiming the good news of God and that the kingdom of God 
had come near. Now, what is this subject, the kingdom of God, all about? Well, the kingdom of God, broadly speaking, is the overarching rule and reign of God over all things. That's how I would describe it. The kingdom of God is present, meaning that it already is. But the kingdom of God is also future, meaning that it is yet to be eternally realized. And I want to show you from this verse and this passage of scripture in the gospel of Mark, three actions of Jesus regarding the kingdom of God. And specifically, what life with the king in the kingdom is all about. The first action is that Jesus manifest the reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus manifests the reality of the kingdom of God. Verse 15 says the time is fulfilled. Now there are two primary words translated as time in the New Testament. One is chronos, which indicates chronological time. So this is the progression of time as we would think about it. The other is kairos, meaning the strategic opportunity or the decisive time, the important moment. And Jesus used the second word indicating that the strategic time for the kingdom of God had arrived. It had been made manifest. Now is the opportunity. Don't let this pass you by, is what Jesus is saying to the people in effect. And he says in verse 15, the kingdom of God has come near. So we think about the king and the kingdom, we realize that the idea of kingdom indicates both kingship and royal rule. One commentator noted, involved in the term is the sovereign authority of a ruler, as well as the activity of ruling and the realm of rule, including all of its benefits. The kingdom of God refers to his sovereign activity or his ruling over what he has created and also over all of time and eternity. Now, this was not an unusual concept for the Jews of Jesus' day who would have heard him say these words. Uh, the Old Testament prophecy pointed to a future messianic kingdom that was going to be established on the earth. The hearers would have understood the reference to the kingdom uh, to be the messianic kingdom that had been predicted in the Old Testament. Of course, the Messiah being the center point, the focus of that messianic kingdom. And if they knew the law, if they knew the prophets, if they knew the history, they knew that everything was moving toward this. They also understood, more generally speaking, the idea of kings and kingdoms. Now, admittedly, this is not a very familiar concept to us today in 2022, but it might surprise you to know that there are still 43 monarchies and monarchs ruling them in the world today. It's still a fairly common methodology of ruling. The people understood the king to be the ultimate authority. He was the ultimate authority over his kingdom. And the king for the people of Israel represented the highest authority. So Jesus intentionally chooses this analogy to talk about who God is and what God does. 
And the greater point that Jesus will make in his ministry is that God is above all earthly kings and kingdoms. All earthly kings and kingdoms are temporary in nature. They're limited in their scope of rule. And yet God, as the king of his kingdom, Jesus Christ, as the Lord over all, is eternal. And his rule is without limit. Jesus indicated that the time had come and God's reign was at hand. Now, while some expected the reign of God to be a dramatic event, Jesus came to dwell within the hearts of people who have faith in him first and foremost. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 20 and 21, it says this. When Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The manifestation of the kingdom is in the lives of those who look to Jesus in the present. I like the way Adam Hamilton put it. He said, that was Jesus' message. Everything else in the Gospels is a way of illustrating what that means. It's a way of teaching what life in the kingdom looks like, what it means to live as a servant of the king, who the king is, and how we enter the kingdom of God. Even the miracles Jesus performs are meant to be examples of what life is like in the kingdom of God. Wholeness and healing and fullness of life. All of this is illustrating the central point of the preaching of Jesus. That the kingdom of God has come near. In that moment when Jesus began his public ministry and he began to talk about the kingdom. It was a decisive moment of the manifestation of God's salvation. And it had come in Jesus. The kingdom of God was among them because the king was among them. Do you know that the kingdom of God has come? The second action is that Jesus proclaims the message of the kingdom of God. If Jesus manifests the reality of the kingdom of God, what then should be our response? If Jesus were simply to have told us about this kingdom and left it as an abstract idea for us to connect and not told us more about what we're to do in response to it, we would be in trouble. But he gives us the instruction here about what we're to do about the reality of this kingdom. And according to Jesus, verse 15, we are to repent and believe the good news. The preaching of Jesus emphasized the kingdom, repentance, and belief. To repent means to change your mind about something. So as a very simple illustration of that, if you're driving and you realize that you're going in the wrong direction at some point, you turn around and you go in the opposite direction. It's a change of mind about your situation. You're realizing that you're going in the wrong direction. But repentance is actually evidenced by the fact that you turn your car around and you go in the opposite direction. You've changed your mind, but then you've turned and you've acted on it. 
So in this way, a genuine change of mind is going to lead to a change of behavior. If it's only words, then it's empty. And some have called repentance the the first word of the gospel. Repentance is not a work in any way that somehow earns us salvation. No, it is a response to the reality of sin. It's a change of mind about our situation. And to repent is to turn away from something that is our existing object of trust, and that would be self. It's to turn away from our current problem, and that would be sin. And it's to turn away from going in the wrong direction spiritually. And I believe that biblical repentance about sin is more than just being sorry about your sin. It's more than just being sorry, especially about the consequences of your sin. You can be sorry for something based on how you feel, and you can experience all sorts of emotions. In fact, you could cry crocodile tears about your situation. And if you don't turn, it's not repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Let me say it another way. Sorrow alone accomplishes nothing. And let's draw a contrast between two examples in the scripture. Peter was sorry he denied Christ three times. He repented, and Jesus eventually restored him. Judas was sorry that he had betrayed Christ, but instead of repenting, he killed himself. There's a vast difference between the two. One is biblical repentance. It is godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation without regret. Versus worldly grief that produces nothing but death. So repentance is a response to the work of God in your life. When you get to the place where you are convicted of your sin, you are convinced by the Spirit of God and the Word of God about your situation and you turn from it, that's repentance. But now note this. Godly sorrow is evidenced by what it produces. We don't really know if the repentance is genuine until it produces the evidence of truly having turned to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, here was the situation. There were a lot of people probably in the audience that heard Jesus say these words who thought they were okay. They thought that they were righteous and they thought that they would gain entrance into heaven. After all, They had the heritage. They were the people of God. They were the people of Israel. And they didn't think they needed it. But yet Jesus looked at them and he told them to repent. And do you know that today the situation might be for you that you think you're okay? You think you're a good person. You might even be a religious person. You think you treat your family well. You do good things. You give back. If you are depending on any of those things, that is not repentance. 
Jesus told them they needed to repent. And I assure you that if Jesus were beginning his public ministry today, he would begin by calling us to repentance. Mark Galley wrote a piece entitled, Whatever Became of Repentance? And in it, he noted that repentance is unpopular because we're addicted to justifying our own actions and pointing out the evil in other people. And he said, if I really looked at my own self-centeredness and pride, I'd have to admit that I'm also a hypocrite and a moral failure. And then he concludes, but aren't we all? That's precisely why Jesus came. He came to save the world from itself. He came to save us from ourselves. He came to deliver us from our sin. And so the word repentance is connected with the good news because it's a change of mind about the bad news that causes us to turn to the good news in Jesus. And that's the summary of the early preaching of Jesus. But I also want to note here that I think there was a sense of urgency in how Jesus presented this message. You know, sometimes we get caught up in the deal that we got plenty of time and I'll get things right with God later and I'm going to work that out with him when I get around to it. And we don't have a sense of urgency sometimes. But we're really fooling ourselves in that because the Bible teaches that life is but a vapor. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know what's coming next month. We don't know what lies ahead of us next year. And we should not put off this message. We should understand that now is the time to repent. Now is the time to believe. Today is the day of salvation. This is the urgency of it all. And to believe means more than agreeing in our minds that something is true. You need to believe that God exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That he is holy and that we are sinful. That God has bridged the gap between heaven and earth. That he has sent his only son to live and to die for us and to be buried and to be raised again. And when we talk about believing from a biblical perspective... It is committing wholeheartedly to an object of faith. So let me state it this way. Jesus is the content of the good news. He is the embodiment of the message. So to believe in Jesus is to commit your life by faith to him and to trust in him. And yes, it includes knowledge. There are certain things that we have to understand and believe are true by faith. But it speaks of a relationship of trust and dependence. And repenting and believing in the good news, that's the only way to enter into the kingdom of God. You cannot come by your good works. You cannot come by your decency. You cannot come by your church membership. Hell is going to be full of people who thought they were good people, but they weren't saved people. And so Jesus calls with an urgency through this message of the kingdom of God. Have you repented and believed? Only you know for sure. If you haven't, I got good news for you. The king 
is inviting you to life in his kingdom. It's life with God. I say often that the essence of the Christian faith is life with God. If we narrow it down to what it is, that's what it is. And the only way to have a life with God is through repentance and faith and being a part of his kingdom family. And then finally, there's a third action. Jesus sends the ambassadors of the kingdom of God. You'll note here that after Jesus' words in Mark 1 and verse 15, he called his first disciples. Verse 17, follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. You'll be fishers of men. The Christian faith is first about following Jesus. And as the disciples followed Jesus, he would make them fishers of men. We find a little bit further down in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14 that he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him to do what? To send them out to preach. That's what he appointed them for. He called them to himself, and then he sent them out with a message. They were first to be in the presence of Jesus and to learn from him, and that's what he's calling us to as well. He's not calling us to religious activity. He's not calling us to any of that. He's calling us to himself, to be in the presence of Jesus. And then what did he do? He sent them out to proclaim the message. And he said he would give them power to serve him. So it's presence, it's proclamation, and it's power. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out the 72, instructing them to say, the kingdom of God has come near you, Luke 10 and verse 9. It was Paul who wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 and following. He said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what we're pleading. That's the message of the church. Be reconciled to God. Know the God who created you. Be forgiven of your sins. Have life in him. And the king has a message about his kingdom. And what does he do? He sends out messengers to deliver it. I think about the idea of earthly ambassadors, and an earthly ambassador does not speak on their own authority, do they? They speak on the authority of the one who sends them out. An ambassador is a, rep- is a representative of his country or her country, and the reputation of the country, at least in part, um, is in their hands. The United States, for example, has ambassadors who serve as our country's diplomatic representatives to foreign nations and international organizations, and, uh, and their ambassadors. some of them are ambassadors at large. And they're usually based in the embassy of the host country that they're in, but they're under the jurisdiction of the Department of State. And there's something like 200 different slots for ambassadors of the United States uh, currently. And if we draw a parallel to that, spiritual ambassadors, ambassadors of Christ, we are representing the king and the kingdom. The reputation of the king and the kingdom, at least in part, 
is reflected by our own testimony, how we live for God, are we representing him well? And we're making a simple plea, just as Paul said, be reconciled to God. Why? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 tells us, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what we're telling people. You can be right with the God who gave you life. And the God who gave you physical life is the God who will give you eternal life. I read that for the past 57 years, the United States Department of State uh, and some sister foreign affairs agencies have honored foreign affairs professionals on a, professionals on a day that they call uh, the Foreign Affairs Day. They celebrate their work around the world. They recognize those who serve the public with uh, distinguished service, particularly those who are uh, retiring from their tenure or maybe moving on to other things. And this thought came to my mind as I thought about what it means to be an ambassador, what it means to be called and then sent. What kind of ambassadors are we in the kingdom of God? What kind of testimony are we giving? How consistent are we in proclaiming the message of the king? Are other people drawn to the king and the kingdom because of our lives? You see, it's all headed toward a future point in the kingdom when Jesus will be proclaimed as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. He has purchased the kingdom through his death and his resurrection. He has defeated Satan in sin and death. He is the rightful ruler of the kingdom. And in the second coming of Jesus, he will return as the victorious king with the name inscribed on his body. King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19 and verse 16. That's who he is. He is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And it's this King of kings and Lord of lords who is extending to you today, in this moment, an invitation to life with the king in the kingdom. Can you imagine that? That we're invited by the king himself to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his family, to be a part of what all that means eternally. Friends, that is... That is grace upon grace. That is the love of God overflowing to us. That's his eternal care and concern for us. And all we have to do is turn to him and receive it by faith. He's a good king. And we're blessed to be invited by him. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we come toward a time of prayer and also a 
partaking of the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Table. I want to ask you this question first of all. Have you repented and believed in the good news? Have you accepted the invitation of God? If you haven't, you can right now in this moment, right where you're seated. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you're not saved today, what's holding you back? What are you waiting on? Why would you not want all that God has for you? Would you trust him? If you have received this invitation and said yes, would you take just a moment to thank Jesus for all that he's done for you? Would you exalt him in this moment as you continue to look to him in faith? Father, we thank you today that we have a message to share. We thank you that you didn't leave us in our trespasses and our sins, but that you sent Jesus to deliver us. We're so blessed to be here today and to witness these baptisms here a few moments ago as a reminder of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, a visual symbol of our faith. We pray your richest blessings on the two ladies who were baptized. I pray that it would be a testimony to all who have gathered here in these moments together. And now as we turn our attention to the table, this is your table, Lord. It belongs to you. It's not ours. But we're blessed to be able to share it and to serve it. And I pray in these moments that there be nothing in our lives that would hinder our fellowship with you. And that in it, Jesus, you would be exalted and your church would be drawn closer together as a result of it. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.